John 16, 16 through 33. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see, and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that the human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking in plain, speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and he will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, uh, good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. Happy New Year. If uh, someone hasn't yet told you that, we're grateful that you're here uh, this morning. If you're a visitor here this morning, uh, welcome. We're, we're glad that you're here this morning. We usually have two services, one at 9 a.m. and one at 11, but last week on Christmas and then today again on New Year's uh, Day, we just have one service. So this is a kind of a cool combination of our 9 a.m. service people and our 11 a.m. service people. Sometimes uh, people kind of stick to one or other, the other service. So you're getting to uh, see maybe people from your church family that you haven't yet in a while. And again, if you are new or visiting, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Next week, we're back at it uh, at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. So make sure you come 
uh, at the right time. But today is New Year's Day. It's a, it's a day where, where many of us, uh, I don't know if it's most or just many, we make a promises to ourselves. It's kind of this rhythm we have uh, in our year, or at least culturally, where we say, okay, a new year is starting, a, a new chance to like look inward or to look at the previous year and see what didn't go so well or to, to kind of look at our flaws and with hope look forward and say, well, hey, I can make a new resolution to be a better version of me to set some goals and reach those. And some of us are pretty optimistic. I am kind of an optimistic, a foolishly optimistic person. And so uh, at times in my life, I've made great New Year, large New Year's resolutions thinking that uh, I'm going to do well. But many of us in this room probably realize that New Year's resolutions don't last that long. I think statistically, they last uh, not long at all for most people. So when we make promises to ourselves, uh, they, it usually doesn't go too well. Sometimes it does, but usually it does not go too well. In our passage today, like Cynthia just read, we're going to see and, and look at how Jesus, God incarnate, God Almighty, is going to make promises to us, promises to you and me. And that is a guarantee. That's actually a great promise because it has nothing to do with us. We're just the recipients. It's not on us to fulfill that it'll happen, but rather God tells us that he's going to do stuff for us. And it's a great promise to rely on. Not to say don't make New Year's resolutions, but today we're going to see a resolution that God says to you and me this morning that we can bank on. So right now we uh, are in a sermon series, like Peter said, in the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He, he wrote about what he saw and experienced uh, as a disciple of Jesus. We are now in chapter 16, um, and we're going to be in verses 16 through 33. We're getting close to uh, the passion of, of Jesus, where we're going to go into his trial and his torture and then execution and resurrection. So we're getting to that point in uh, the Gospel of John. Today's sermon we're entitling, Sorrow Will Turn Into Joy. One of the main joyful uh, phrases of today's passage, a great promise that Jesus speaks to his disciples and speaks to you and me, those of us in this room who are Christians or, or people who will become Christians. He says, your sorrow, it's very real, it's powerful, it's devastating, yet I promise you it will turn into joy. And we're going to unpack exactly why he says that in and uh, what he means. So at the very beginning of our passage, we see uh, Jesus remind his disciples, he said this a bunch of times before, but he's going to tell them, I'm going to leave and then I'm going to come back. And the disciples are, are trying to understand this, right? They're asking, what did you mean by when you said that? And they're talking to each other. They don't know what he means. Verses 16 and 18, we read, a little while, this is Jesus speaking, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me again. And so the disciples were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not, we do, we do not know what he's talking about. And so here we see a very like, a real uh, example, experience of these human disciples, these, these real people just like you and me who are confused by Jesus' teachings. And so if that's you, uh, join the club. If that's you, we have a very real example right here in our passage here today where people who knew Jesus well, who were around Jesus, were confused by his teachings, who didn't quite get it. So you're not alone in that. Jesus' followers who were with him for years are still saying, uh, we don't know what he's talking about. We are confused. 
Now, thankfully, we're on this side of the cross, and we have how the story finishes, and so we can, we can understand a lot better with exactly what he is saying and what he's meaning, but it is very real to just not quite get what Jesus is saying, including what comes before John right here, which is uh, all of the Old Testament. So if you are a person who just has a hard time reading the Bible and knowing exactly what it means, or seeing Jesus' teachings and the works that he uh, does throughout his ministry, you're just not alone. Don't be too frustrated or too down on yourself. It is very human to interact like that, but we will get to some clarity later today, so we're not just going to stay there. Also, just realize that uh, like Jesus doesn't give up on his disciples, Jesus doesn't give up on you. When you are confused, when you are frustrated, when you just don't get it, when you forget, Jesus doesn't give up on you. He's patient with his disciples. Here, he doesn't rebuke them or shame them. My wife and I have been watching uh, The Chosen, which is a, a miniseries on Jesus' life. Highly, highly recommend it uh, if you haven't read it. But, but in there, we're kind of seeing, you know, seeing this, this acted out. Uh, Jesus interacting with his disciples. And I mean, this type of stuff is happening over and over again. They just don't know what he's saying. They're very confused uh, again and again and again. And we see in these episodes, Jesus' posture towards his uh, disciples who don't understand, who don't get it, who forget, who don't believe him, who are selfish. And he's so patient with them, guys. He's so warm. He's empathetic as Christ became fully human while not losing his full divinity. And so let that be an encouragement to you today. If you're not perfect, if your understanding of Jesus, his teachings, the Bible, what he did is a bit confusing. That's Jesus' posture towards you and towards me. He's patient with you. He's not disgusted saying, really, you've been a Christian for a year, a few decades, and you still don't get it, but rather he's empathetic towards us. That it is, That is his posture. Also, this gives us great hope if you're not a brilliant person, if you're not highly educated. Now, of course, we have some people in, in our church who are very, very smart. That is true. But most of us, we're not brilliant. We're not the, the greatest scholars. We don't have degrees in philosophy or religion or rhetoric. And so there's hope for us, just like there is hope for all these, many of them, blue-collar, uneducated disciples who are confused. You don't need to be brilliant. You don't need to be highly educated. You don't need to have a degree or lots of training to follow Jesus or to understand him. He calls all people to himself. Now Jesus continues and he says in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And you can just hear Jesus' disciples saying, finally, finally you're not going to speak in riddles and figure of speech and analogy and analogies and symbolism because we just don't get that. But thank you, Jesus. He says, there, something is going to happen where now I don't need to speak in figures of speech anymore. Something's about to happen where I will finally speak clearly to you and you will understand. An event is going to happen that will bring clarity to all my teachings, all my works, all my uh, miracles, all my signs, all the prophecies about me. Another way to say this, Pastor Chris says this uh, often some, uh, in his uh, classes that he teaches on how to interpret the Bible, but Jesus is like 
a pair of decoder glasses. Do you guys know what these, I, I don't know if they make these anymore. They, they used to have these all the time where uh, like you'd see this kind of blurred uh, picture in the background, maybe on a cereal box or in a toy or something. But then once you put on these glasses, uh, it would get rid of, I don't know, the, the, the red lines or the blue lines or whatever, and you'd be able to see the secret code that was hidden. So Jesus is like that set of decoder glasses. When we look at the beginning parts of John, when we look at all of the Old Testament, if we look at it through the lenses of Jesus Christ and what he's going to do in just a couple chapters, especially his death and resurrection and ascension, we're going to see clearly, we're going to see the point. We're going to see the message. And so we need the cross and the resurrection, as well as the spirit that Jesus is going to give after his death and resurrection. We need that in order to understand. All the Bible, all Jesus' teachings, his actions, his signs and wonders, his healings, all make sense in light of the gospel, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So, so far in our story, this hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't yet died. He has not yet been risen from the grave. And so, this is where we are here in the story. And we, on this side of the cross and resurrection, have these decoder glasses. Now, can look and see exactly what Jesus is saying and what he means. And that is going to be the interpretive tool that we use to understand what is going on here. Jesus even brought this up earlier in his ministry at the very beginning of John. And I'm sure the disciples did not fully get it or the other listeners but he said back in uh, John chapter 5, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. So Moses, ancient prophet in, uh, the, the, with the Hebrew people, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, including the law. And Jesus is saying to religious people, to good Jewish people, Moses, the guy who wrote the law, the, the guy who wrote the first five books of the Bible, the greatest prophet up until this point, if you believed him, you would believe in me because he wrote of me. So even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's, he's telling his disciples, I am the decoder glasses. I am the interpretational key. Moses wrote about me. So when we read Moses, when we read about the creation of the cosmos and everything in it, when we, we uh, uh, in, in, in some great way, we, we are seeing a picture of Jesus. In fact, John, at the very beginning of John, the very first verse uh, references Genesis 1-1, the very beginning, the very first verses that Moses wrote when he says, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created through him. So we see that at the beginning of Moses. We see things like the temple, the sacrificial system, the exodus that the Hebrews, when they were saved out of oppression and slavery, the kings, the priesthood, the prophets are all pointing ahead to Jesus. They all make their sense in Jesus. And so we could talk, I mean, we, we have a whole semester-long class on exactly how to do this. But Jesus here is reminding us that he is the point of this book. He's the solution to everything. And now, in his actions of his death and resurrection, in, in just a few chapters, things no longer are going to be cloudy and confusing and veiled. We're no longer going to have this figurative speech, but after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's going to speak clearly about the Father and about the salvation that he is about to buy. 
All right, so that's just the introduction that kind of helps us understand where we are going, where Jesus is going. But Jesus now, in the rest of our passage, he's going to let his disciples know some bad news, some sucky news. He's going to tell them that unbelievable suffering and sorrow, both suffering and sorrow, are about to come. Yet, he promises them that joy is also going to come amidst that sorrow. And peace he's going to give them during that suffering. So actually, in a lot of ways, if, if, if any of you celebrate Advent, today's passage is actually a very good Advent uh, passage and sermon because the last two weeks of Advent are uh, joy and peace. And Jesus promises both of those in our passage. So if you're still hanging on to the Christmas season and Advent uh, in God's providence, we're preaching a sermon that's very Advent-like in a lot of ways. But the first thing Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you will be sorrowful. But even in that sorrow, there will be some joy. I will bring joy out of it. So for the original 11 disciples, Jesus, or Judas will uh, uh, hang himself. He'll commit suicide. But for the other 11 and then the, the many other disciples as well, they will, uh, Jesus is saying, your future, your very near future will be full of sorrow. Things like weeping, lament, despair, depression, and hopelessness. In verse 20, he said, truly, truly, I, I, I say to you, you will weep. You will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. To answer the question of why, why is this going to happen, or, or how is this going to happen, we know from just the next few chapters in John that their master is about to leave them. This guy that many of them are convinced is the Messiah, some of them even convinced that he is divine, that he is God incarnate, he's about to leave them. This guy that they left everything for, left their jobs, their families, their reputations to follow. He's leaving them. This, this, this man that they love more than anything else in this world is about to be gone. Their master's leaving them. And so there will be, there will be full of sorrow. They will weep. They will lament. But it's not just that. It's not just that he is leaving, but it's also the how. How Jesus is going to leave them. Their Lord, their master, is about to be unjustly tortured, abandoned, rejected, and executed. And Jesus even says here, that's going to happen. And while that's happening, the world is going to rejoice. Which just stop for a second. I mean, think about if, how you would respond. If you unjustly were convicted or tortured, you were innocent, but you were executed, and the world is rejoicing as that is happening, think about how you would want to respond to the world, right? The world that's rejoicing, that's celebrating that you unjustly were executed, right? We might think, well, screw the world. I'm no longer, if we were Jesus, I'm no longer dying for you. You don't deserve this. Yet what is Jesus' posture? He knows that the world is about to rejoice that he is going to get crucified. Yet he joyfully because of his love for humanity and God the Father, moves towards the cross. So Jesus' execution, his betrayal, all the injustice surrounding that will bring his disciples great, great sorrow as well. Their world is literally going to be, maybe not literally, but completely turned upside down. 
Everything they know and they thought is going to be turned upside down. And in this, notice that Jesus is validating their experiences. He's saying what you're going to go through, it really, it really is sorrow. It really is going to be full of weeping, bitter tears, lament, depression. You really are going to feel this. He doesn't say, guys, I'm telling you how it's going to end. Don't have those emotions. Tough it out. Bite your lip. Bare your teeth. Be men. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't be babies. But he says, no, you're going to weep. Guys, this is going to be torture for you. And so we see Jesus' kindness again, his, his patience towards them and towards us. People who know how it's going to end, but still wrestle with sorrow and weeping and lament. And also gives validation to when we see similar things in this world, much lesser things than innocent God being rejected and executed. But when we see injustice in the world, when you see evil winning, and it brings you great sorrow, when it, it brings weeping and lament and depression, that's the right feeling. That's the right response. When you feel lost or abandoned, when you feel alone and uncertain about the future and confused what uh, is going to happen in your life, in your relationships, in your job, in your situations, and that brings sorrow and discouragement and depression and grief and tears. That's normal. And Jesus is there with you with, with patience and compassion and love towards you. Jesus here is, one of the things he's doing, he's validating the human experience. And at the same time, it, because of his love for us, he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just pat us on the back and say, it's going to be hard, guys. It's going to be tough. This is what's going to happen. He does do that, but he also says, but I'm going to be with you. And I'm not just going to leave you there. So Jesus here, he's preparing for them. He's, he's promising that his leaving and his defeat is actually the solution. Him leaving them, him being unjustly executed, his death is actually the rescue plan. It's the solution. It's the, it's the way that the enemy is going to be defeated. It's the way, the means by which separation from God will finally be removed. He says, as verse 20 continues, he says, but, so you're going to have sorrow in this world, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned into joy because you will see me again. So you're going to be full of lament and tears and grief and sorrow because I am leaving. But guess what? I'm coming back. I promise you I'm coming back. And when you see me again, he actually doesn't say you will find me. He says, when I will find you, when I will see you, your sorrow will turn into joy. The victory and the reunion will make them nearly forget the anguish and the sorrow that they went through. Jesus says, I'm coming back and your sorrow will turn into joy because I will see you again. We'll be reunited. And Jesus even gives a great analogy here. He says, what's going to happen to the disciples is kind of like when a woman gives birth. Verse 21, we read, Jesus says, uh, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being 
has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. First of all, big disclaimer here. Uh, although I have been by my wife's side for all three of her very intense and scary labors of our, of our three kids, I personally do not have firsthand knowledge of the anguish of labor, uh, nor does Jesus, nor do actually you know, the majority of the people in this room. So we're not speaking from experience, yet Jesus gives this great analogy, which is also just really cool, right? That Jesus chooses to use this imagery. As, as a man of the ancient world, he was uh, sure not expected to do things like this. He was not expected to enter into the world of a woman and her reality and her experiences, especially experiences that are private and, and, and bloody. Yet, Jesus honors the labor that so many women go through in giving birth. And Jesus shares how that experience, the, the, the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that labor and birth provide is a picture, a beautiful picture, a real meaningful and, and a powerful picture of the gospel. Now I, like I said, no first-hand experience here, but I, I talked to many, many women here at Hiawatha and asked them, hey, what, what, what's your insight on this verse? Is, is it great to hear? Is it powerful? What's, what's meaningful here? What, what do you pick up on? That was super helpful to hear from so, so many of you, to hear your wisdom and perspective. And uh, one of, uh, I got many, many great responses. One of them shared, shared this with me, which I thought is, is, uh, gives more understanding and uh, a, a beautiful connection here. Uh, they, they wrote, they told me, that the pain and labor for me was, was so severe that I could find little comfort in almost anything. And although I, I know I wasn't alone, I felt so alone because of the anguish and the pain that I was going through. She said, I think with extreme pain, as in, uh, as in labor, that we are incredibly self-focused and, and lose our perspective, which is very understandable. This helps us understand what the disciples are going through or are going to go through. So their master is going to be taken away from them. He's gone Rome wins, evil wins, Jesus is gone, and in their extreme pain, they lose all focus. They're confused. This situation, uh, she writes, helps us understand then maybe why the disciples have, have no faith uh, leading up to the crucifixion or why they're hiding in fear right after Jesus' death or why they have no faith leading up to Jesus' Resurrection, or even when they hear rumors that Jesus came back from the dead, that he has risen, why they're still confused and why they're, yeah, not thinking straight. Because, like a woman in labor, they were just so preoccupied with the extreme anguish of losing Jesus and watching him endure such humiliation and pain that the disciples were just blind to see his resurrection. There was just a couple days in the future and coming. So, Jesus gives this, this powerful. Uh, example here, more figurative language that helps us see just like in a birth, it's, it's very agonizing. It's, it's anguish. It's sorrow. It really is suffering. There's great pain and, and emotional distress and much but when the mother's holding that baby many times, they forget all about that because they're reunited with the one they love. And Jesus says, that's a lot like what's going to happen to my disciples. 
Much more we could say about this. I, I, like I said, I got great feedback from uh, many of you, and so there'll be more of this in your uh, leaders' guides. You can discuss this with your community groups or discuss this with your family and friends or talk to someone maybe who has gone through birth and ask their insight into this really great example that Jesus gives us. Before us, not just the disciples now too, this is also like very practical for you and me. Jesus is not physically here with us in his body. So for us, we also feel sorrow to be away from our Savior, to be separated from our Lord. We lament at times as we wait. And this same joy that Jesus is speaking about and describing in vivid picture when a mother finally gets to hold her baby that she went through so much suffering to give life to, we too will have that type of joy when we are reunited with our Savior, when Jesus comes back. The New Testament even describes real painful suffering that we're going through now, describes that as light and momentary affliction. When compared to the glory that we will receive when we, re, when we are re, reunited with our Savior. Of course it's real. Of course it's horrible. It's still called suffering and anguish and grief and lament and weeping. Yet when compared to eternity, connected with God, with no death, no sin, no separation anymore, we'll look back at this and just say it was light and momentary. Jesus continues to essentially prophesy over his disciples in our own lives as well. He doesn't just promise joy in their sorrow, but he also says that they're going to go through much suffering. Their lives from this moment on are going to be filled with suffering. Right before this, Jesus taught them, just like Jesus was hated by the world, his disciples too would be hated. And likewise, he's going to teach right here that because Jesus would suffer, his disciples also would go through tribulation, trials, suffering, and anguish. Yet again, bad news, but really great news. Right after it, Jesus promises, not only will his disciples go through this, not only will you and I go through this, but he also promises peace to his followers during that suffering, to endure that suffering. Verse 32, he says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. We know very soon, in just a few hours, Judas is going to betray Jesus. The disciples don't protect him, don't rescue him, but rather they just scatter. They go to their home. They leave Jesus. And this will continue through Jesus' death and his days in the tomb. Jesus will be alone. His disciples, like we've talked about, We'll go through great suffering. But it actually, like we know, it will continue. It will continue even beyond Jesus' resurrection. Jesus, at the end of uh, verse 33, he says, uh, in this world you will have trouble. The world will continue to be against you and hate you at times. You will have tribulation. You will have trial. You will have suffering. And this plays out in, in a myriad of ways in the disciples' lives and in turn, our lives as well. We will be hated. The disciples will be hated by the world. They will go through great poverty. They will be rejected by their, their religion, by their people, by their homes, uh, people in their towns, by their families. They will essentially be uh, ostracized or, or canceled, now leaving the Jewish faith and the Jewish people and 
following Jesus Christ as God. They will receive great persecution. And Jesus tells them, this is going to be your reality. You will go through suffering. Yet, through all of this, he also promises peace amidst this suffering. Notice in verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me, we're going to come back to that, in me you may have peace. And then again at the end of the verse, take heart though. Take heart. It's going to suck. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be true suffering and trial and tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. But we might be asking, well, what kind of peace is this? What kind of peace is Jesus talking about? Because he just said the world's going to hate us. He just says you're going to be persecuted. He just said there's not going to be uh, interconnected reconciliation and, and everyone getting along. There's going to be lots of hard stuff. So what does he mean by saying there's going to be peace? Because it seems like the opposite. There's being conflict and violence and brokenness. But in this, at the very least, Jesus is promising us two types of peace. He's promising us an inner peace that will be gifted to us via the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that we just read earlier that he's going to send, his spirit that's going to send into the world, into all those who believe. And second, Jesus is also promising a peace that allows us sinners who are at odds with God to be united to God despite our rebellion and sin. So notice too that in both of these pieces that Jesus promises to you and I amidst trial and tribulation and suffering, notice in, in both these cases, Jesus is the active party. The first one, he, he gives us his spirit. We don't earn the spirit. We don't keep the spirit. We don't grow more Holy Spirit in us. Jesus gifts us. He gives us his spirit. And also, Jesus is the active party in justifying us before God, saving us in doing what needs to happen so that we can move from being at odds with God and guilty before God to now being reunited with him. We're actually going to see throughout the New Testament, if you keep reading this story, throughout the rest of the New Testament, we're going to see that one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the natural things that will grow in our lives because the Spirit is in us, is something called peace. So peace is not something that you just try to work on in your life or you just do things and peace kind of, your peace meter grows, but rather peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of being connected to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you are in me, just a few chapters before, he said, I am uh, like a branch and you are like vines. If you're in me, if you're connected to me, stuff will grow in you. Eternal life will grow in you. Good deeds will grow in you. And one of those is this peace. Let's talk about these two things in just a little more detail here. So the first thing Jesus says, there we go, yep. The first thing that Jesus says is that uh, in me you will have peace. So Jesus is going to give us peace by sending his Holy Spirit, which we've seen before, right, right, right before this, there's the Holy Spirit, Jesus' Spirit is called the Comforter. He's called the Helper. And so in times of suffering and trial, the Spirit of God is going to be your helper. He's going to be one that comforts you. He's going to be the one that gives you peace. The New Testament, other places, uses this type of language. The peace of God, 
which transcends all understanding. We don't get it. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, if we are in him, if we're connected to the vine, if we're saved into him, this is the type of peace that Jesus promises us. A peace that we can't even understand, that it's hard to define, that we describe and it just seems impossible to wrap our minds around it. Jesus says, if you are in me, this is what I will give you. This is what my spirit will produce in you. So through the spirit, the comforter, the helper, we will have this inner peace amidst suffering. But the second thing Jesus says is he, or the second type of peace that he offers is a peace between us and God. We are sinners. We are guilty before God. We were rebellious against him. So we are, we are not connected to our creator. We're not united to him in a natural state, but rather we are against him. We are even his enemies. We are running away from him. We don't want him to rule and reign. We want to be the king of our own lives. And Jesus also addresses this. He says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, very soon I'm about to die and I'm about to be raised from the grave. And in that, I'm going to defeat everything. I'm going to defeat your sin. I'm going to defeat evil. Because I will rise, I will overcome the world. I will overcome the ruler of this world, Satan. I will overcome all the evil and the rebellion and the brokenness. Uh, ancient, not ancient, 1700s, 1800s, I forget when Charles Spurgeon, the British pastor and author, wrote, he says, Christian, you are not asked to trust in a dead Jesus, but one who, though he died for our sins, has risen again for our justification. When Jesus says, take heart, don't worry, have courage, because I have overcome the world, this is what he's saying. Saying Jesus did not stay in that grave, he raised victoriously. And what his death and resurrection accomplished is that you no longer have to be guilty, full of shame. You no longer have to be at odds with God, his enemy. You no longer have to be a rebel against the king. In what's theologically called justification, you move from being uh, literally guilty to being uh, declared literally innocent before God. And that is the Jesus who we trust. A risen Jesus who rose for our justification, who changed our state. And in Christ's victory, the separation we had from God, from our creator, is now removed through faith in Jesus. We no longer are enemies. We're no longer fighting against him. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. He tells that to you and me today. The doctrine of justification, that Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we can move from being de- uh, guilty to now declared innocent. Jesus gives his innocence to us. He gifts us that. And Jesus also says, in me, he says, in being in me, by putting your faith, you are now somehow spiritually, mystically in me. And if you are in me, you will have peace. And we talked about the inner peace, but you will also have peace with God. And that is the doctrine of union with Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we are united with Christ in such a real and powerful and, and, and permanent way that it is like we are in Jesus. 
We're united to him in all different types of metaphors. The, the New Testament speaks about this. And because you are in Jesus, God the Father, a good, just judge, looks at you and me and sees his son's innocence. And that's his plan. And that was Jesus' desire. And this is how God can be just because your sin, the evil that you've done, doesn't just get overlooked. It does get punished, but it gets punished on our Savior. So in our passage here today, Jesus is alluding to, because it hasn't quite happened yet, that our justification is about to happen on the cross and through the empty tomb, that union with Christ can now happen through faith in Jesus. And he says all this really great stuff, this is kind of a long passage, and it's very deep, very profound, very layered. But let me try to just break it down a little bit. And I am going to simplify a bit. But he says so much stuff in here. And as you chat with other people about this passage or study it more in your community groups, you're going to say, wow, he didn't hit on this and this and this. And I am simplifying a little bit here because there's so much great stuff here. But I'm going to try to help us see the connections, why some of these verses are just not randomly thrown in here. But now, in Jesus' name, now being in him, now being in Christ, now being united to him, we have full access and connection with God. Okay? And then out of that leads to Jesus saying these things. Jesus saying things like, in that day you will ask nothing of me. So you're not going to talk to me and ask for things. You're now going to talk to God the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So, so much going on here. But what Jesus, a big part of what Jesus is saying here, up until then, people were speaking to Jesus, asking him for help, like literally Jesus and his disciples. But now he's saying something new is about to happen. I'm about to die. I'm about to be raised from the grave. And now something new is going to happen. You can now speak to God the Father, and you're going to do it in my name, and now you can have confidence that God will hear you. You can have confidence now that he will listen to you, that he will not turn you away, that he will receive you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, Jesus says. When you prayed, you just said, oh, Yahweh. You said, oh, God. You said, our Father who art in heaven. But he said, now you're going to pray in my name because you are now in me. And God the Father, just like God the Father interacts and loves and glorifies and communes with and is unified with God the Son, that is now going to be gifted to you through faith, Jesus is saying. So that is why, Christian, now we can ask and we will receive. We can ask in Jesus' name because of those two things we just looked at, because of our justification, because of our union with Christ, we can now ask in Jesus' name, which means we are in Christ, we're speaking to God, on, speaking to God the Father through Jesus Christ. We have that confidence that God will hear us, that he will be close to us, and you will receive, Jesus says. Martin Luther, the great uh, Protestant reformer, speaks on this, and this, this prayer and this passage and can say it much better than, than me. So we're going to read from him now. Martin Luther writes about this. He says, this phrase, in my name, is the most important part of our text, this passage here. It is the foundation on which prayer must rest. 
These words give to prayer the good quality and the dignity that makes it acceptable to God. They also free, these words, they also free us from all severe trials and from useless worries regarding our own worthiness. Worries that hinder our praying and frighten us more than anything else. Isn't that great? And there's more. We're going to keep reading. But he says, when we don't pray, it's because we're afraid. Will God hear us? Will God answer us? He's probably mad at us because I had a horrible week because I said bad things. I did bad things. I had horrible thoughts. I forgot about him. And so the reasons we don't pray is because we think we are unworthy. But Luther says, when we pray in Jesus' name, we remind ourselves, we declare it before God, that we're not worthy, but we are in Jesus. And because of that, we are worthy. God will hear us. Luther continues, from these words, when we pray in Jesus' name, from these words, we gather that we should not be concerned or worried about our worthiness, but should forget about worthiness and unworthiness and base our prayer on Christ and pray in his name. It is as though he were saying, my dear friend, it does not matter what condition you are in. If you cannot pray on your own authority and in your own name, as indeed you should not, then please, Jesus is saying this today, please pray in my name. If you are not worthy and holy enough, let me be holy and worthy enough for you. And so that is how this is all connected. Jesus is uh, talking about sending the Spirit, his uh, allusions to what's about to happen with his death and his resurrection, his promises that through justification and union with Christ we will have joy even though we're sorrowful. He will bring joy out of that sorrow and we will have uh, peace even while we suffer and we will suffer. And because of all of that, we are connected with our creator. We are united to Christ. We don't have to worry about our holiness or worthiness anymore, that we can approach God the Father with confidence because we know he loves us and he sees us. So as we leave here today, kind of out of this, and we're going to take communion in uh, just a bit, but out of this, brothers and sisters, if, if you are a Christian here today, our, our lives will resemble Christ's life and will resemble the lives of the disciples. That's one of Jesus' loving warnings for us today, is that you will go through sorrow. You will go through sorrow in this life. You will go through suffering in this life. He validates the human experience, living in a fallen, broken world. But he also says, "I, I, I won't leave you there. So don't be surprised when you have conflict at work. Don't be surprised when other Christians hurt you, intentionally or unintentionally. Don't be surprised when your health fails you or when the world hates you. Jesus promised all these things so that when they happen, we won't be shocked and think he has abandoned us or that he's not good or true. So let that be one of Jesus' reminders here today, which, which kind of relatedly leads to the, the goal of this life is not to remove every type of trial, every type of suffering, every type of sorrow. And if we, I mean, many of us, again, looked back at 2022, and it was probably full of a lot of that. Broken relationships, lots of hurt, failures in our lives, people failing us, horrible things going on in the world, being sinned against, lots of sickness and unhealth. But the goal of life, Jesus is reminding us here, is not to remove all of our sorrow or suffering, even if that was possible and it's not, but rather Jesus promises 
that he will be with us. He will sustain us. He will reorient us, all the while giving us both joy and peace. Now and fully in the new creation that he is going to bring us. So our lives will resemble the disciples' lives because Jesus promised it and because they resemble Jesus and we will as well. And in the midst of this, remember the gifts that Jesus gives us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us peace, inner peace and peace with God. And he also will bring joy because he promises you will see him again face to face. If you are a Christian here today, you will see him again face to face. And if you're not a Christian today, maybe you're just a visitor or came with a friend or you're curious, or maybe you thought you had been a Christian, but what you hear Jesus saying today, you realize that's never been who you are, that's never been your story. If that's true, just know that this is, again, let, let me be real clear, this is what Jesus offers you. He offers you uh, justification. He offers you, he will defeat everything bad in this world so you don't have to. And he will unite you with him. He will connect you with him, with the divine, with your savior. And the way that we do this is not by doing anything, but just by trusting in him, by saying, God, I know I am broken. I know I'm incomplete. I know I am imperfect without you. But be my perfection. Be my hope. I put my trust in you. So we're about to move into a time of uh, communion now. So in kind of in this, this same spot in uh, John. It's not recorded as uh, clearly here in John, but it's about the same time we see it in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus has this last supper right before he is betrayed and tortured and then eventually crucified. He has this meal, a, a Passover meal, a meal that... Hebrew and Israelite people have had for centuries, and he says something new is about to happen. So just like we're thinking about new things now on New Year's Day today, Jesus says something new is going to happen, meaning different than what used to happen over and over again. Something new is going to happen. This justification, this connection with God, this, this having our sins removed and being united is going to happen, and we can now approach God no longer through animal sacrifices, no longer through ceremonial washings, no longer through converting to Judaism, no longer in going into the temple, but now we can have justification and union with Christ now through something brand new. And Jesus said, I, I, uh, he has this meal where he literally takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is what's going to be new about it. I am the one that's going to fix the problem. I'm going to have my body literally broken for you. In just a few hours, this is going to happen. And I am going to have my blood poured out for you. And in this new covenant, this new way of humanity relating to God, it is no longer what you do, but now what am I going to do for you fully? It's my body that's going to be broken, my blood that's going to be shed no longer an animal, no longer your money buying that sacrifice, no longer your feet walking to the temple, no longer your hands washing yourself and making yourself pleasing before God. But Jesus says, it's, it's what I'm going to do. This is new, this is different, this is better, this is great. And so he gave his disciples this meal. He says, continue to remember it. Whenever you gather, do this 
and remember me. And so, I mean, it's, it's a powerful th- thing to think that for millennia, on, on every continent in the world, in nearly every language you can think about, human beings are doing this exact same thing. They're remembering God who became man, who died in our place. And every time we have this meal, we say, glory to God. We say, you are the one that has saved us through what this meal symbolizes. We are sinners, we are imperfect, we are broken, and we need a Savior. And so different streams of Christianity use different names for the Lord's Supper. It's also called communion, which now through this, we can now be united with God. We can have communion with God, and then a fruit of that, we can have communion, connection, community, unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with each other. And so today, as we talked a lot about union with Christ, we can remember that, that through what this meal symbolizes, we can now be united with Christ. And then the fruit of that, we can be united with each other. And you can even think about, as, as you're seeing people walk down this aisle during any of the four songs, walk down this aisle and breaking bread, we also have gluten-free bread or pouring wine or grape juice, you can think in some real, mystical, yet true and powerful way, I'm united to those people. They are my spiritual brothers and sisters. And, and as, as well as the same thing is happening across the globe and has happened throughout time, and I'm united to them as well as a fruit of now being united to our Creator. So in, in just a second, I'm going to pray, invite the band up. They're going to play a series of four songs. Anytime during that, like I said, feel free to come down the center aisle, just so we don't crash into each other. Come down the center aisle, grab some bread, grab some grape juice or wine. There will be people up front if you'd like to pray. We'd love to pray with you uh, this morning if that would bless you. You don't have to, but we'll, we'll be available. Leah Miller and myself will be up here uh, to pray with you. Maybe the Spirit's prompting you this morning as, as we just, Jesus really unpacked, you can approach God with confidence, knowing that he loves you. Maybe you've been afraid to pray with people or yourself to pray to God because you feel like, I'm unworthy. He's mad at me. I've done too many sins. I'm not in a good spot. Why would he listen to me? I'm full of shame. I'm full of guilt. Like Luther reminded us, and and Jesus, more importantly, reminded us, uh, we can now speak to God with confidence in Jesus' name because we are in Christ. And so if you'd like prayer to also be a part of uh, your worship this morning, we'd love to pray for you. Feel free to pray with the people you came with. Sit in the front pew if if you'd like for for a time. Um, But let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your great love for us, that your plan from eternity past was to send your Son into this world to die in our place so that we can be made innocent if we put our faith in the innocent one. That we can be not just made innocent, but we can be connected to you. We can be unified with, with the being in the universe that our hearts most long to be connected to, the, our, our, our Heavenly Father, our big brother, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for that good news that's uh, still a little figurative here in our passage here today, but in just a few chapters will be made very clear as your son unjustly is tortured and, and abandoned and executed joyfully because he knew uh, what it would accomplish, because he loved you and because he loved us. He loved the world enough to joyfully walk through Uh, torture and execution and injustice as well as your wrath so that we might live. God, we pray uh, for those in this room who don't believe yet that they would see your great love for them and that love would overcome them. Love wins. Uh, Love 
your love is powerful, and uh, we pray that they would believe it. For those in this room who already believe, we pray you would be glorified in our lives and, and freshly remind us again of our union, our connection with you, our worthiness because of you. We thank you for all this good news and more. And as we uh, sing and celebrate and worship through song and prayer and the Lord's Supper, we thank you, Jesus, once again. Amen.